Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. A few months ago, we talked about an exceptional piece that Barton Gelman wrote in The Atlantic titled, Trump's Next Coup Has Already Begun. And if you missed it, I recommend you read it or listen to it if you prefer. Because as shocking as some people found the title, Barton articulated something that I and many of my guests have seen clearly and warned about since soon after the insurrection, that January 6th was in fact practice. The more information we learn about the coordinated planning and execution of that day, thanks to the work of people like Liz Cheney and the January 6th committee, and the more we watch the GOP move deliberately to replace the key elections officials that thwarted Trump's subversion attempts with loyalists, the more people have begun to understand Barton's headline is not reckless alarmism. It is soberingly precise. And more recently, we talked about a presentation that the team at Third Way put together. That's the think tank where our friend Lene Erickson works. They outlined what they're seeing as the plot to steal the presidency in the 2024 election and what we can do to stop it. So I'm excited to talk about just that with our guests today. Matt Bennett, who spearheaded the presentation, is one of the co-founders of Third Way and its executive vice president for public affairs. He's a veteran of both of Bill Clinton's presidential campaigns and served as the deputy assistant to the president for intergovernmental affairs in the Clinton White House. He also earned his JD from the University of Virginia School of Law. Matt, thank you for making the time today and welcome to Politicology. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. We are also joined by Jess Marsden, who is counsel at a nonpartisan nonprofit called Protect Democracy. She runs their work on protecting the 2022 and 2024 elections, including their litigation and advocacy around voting rights and disinformation, and their vote shield tool for elections administrators. She earned her JD from Yale Law School. Jess, it's great to meet you and welcome to Politicology. Great to be here. Thanks. So uh, why don't we dive in? Uh, to the presentation you put together, Matt. Um, But before we do, I want to get to the substance. Why don't you set the table by talking about what you were seeing and uh, and why now? Why put this deck together? Well, uh, as you noted, uh, Barton Gelman's piece was kind of a galvanizing moment for many of us who actually waded our way through the 42 pages of that um, magnum opus, 14,000 words. It was brilliantly done. Uh, and and other pieces by Robert Kagan in the Washington Post and Applebaum has been writing about this. There have been probably a couple dozen of these warning of this extraordinary threat to democracy that you talk about on this show all the time. But the problem that we saw, and I discussed this with Jess's colleague, Ian Basson at Protect Democracy and some others who are working in the pro-democracy space, is that the democratic establishment, and I mean the big D democratic establishment, um, was not nearly alarmed enough about what was going on. There is a lot of focus, of course, uh, through the commission and, other, and, the, and the Justice Department on what happened in 2020, and that was horrible. But there is not nearly enough focus on what is happening in 2022 and 23 and most frighteningly in 2024. And when you talk to senators and members of Congress, some folks in the administration, but also um, others in the party, party officials, uh, operatives, consultants, pollsters, donors, they just are not they're not scared enough about what's going on out there. And they don't understand that this isn't going to be you know, Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell threatening to release the Kraken and hair dye running down Giuliani's. This is going to be serious and it is happening now. And we wanted to make that clear. Okay. So Jess, when we talk about 
the plot to steal the presidency. Um, I put that in, in air quotes. The casual observer is probably thinking about what we saw in November 2020, like what Matt just described, the, the real-life SNL sketches, uh, right? How do you see those attempts to steal the 2020 election comparing to what we're seeing now? I think the best way to understand the 2020 election is a first draft of the plot that we might see uh, in 2024. It had many of the same components. Uh, There were efforts to suppress the vote. There were efforts to put pressure on the vote counters to not follow the ballots where they lay. There were efforts to threaten election officials. There were even in states like Georgia and Arizona legislators who were uh, calling on their leadership to bring them back into session to throw out the results of the popular vote. And of course, on January 6th, we saw there were members of Congress who were willing to take part in the same kind of scheme. But the lessons that have been learned from 2020 are um, are laying the path forward for, for changes that will make that uh, plot easier to run in 2024. So we've seen, for example, um, even more aggressive voter suppression bills passed in states like Texas and Georgia. We have seen a concerted effort to remove or remove powers from the individuals like Brad Raffensperger, who acted in accordance with the Constitution in 2020. We have seen even more aggressive efforts to threaten election officials that have led many of those officials to leave their jobs. And we have seen legislatures giving themselves more power to intervene in the in the post-election processes. And what that they're that's to to sort of use the writing metaphor, they're editing the first draft um, and we'll see the final product in 2024. Okay. So let's dig into some of these things. You lay out the Republican plot to steal the presidency in 2024. You start with the voter suppression, which, which, you know, everyone probably understands is not new. Republicans for a long time have enjoyed the the reality that low turnout elections, or at least the conventional wisdom, low turnout elections favor Republicans, right? And so there has been for a long time, uh, a bias in Republican lawmaking to limit access to voting wherever they um, can do with a straight face. But there's this new move to the realm of vote theft. And as George Packer put it in The Atlantic, uh, and I'm quoting, the supreme danger now is not about drop boxes or mail ballot application windows. The danger is that the express will of the American people could be overthrown. And I've made this point uh, multiple times on the show, uh, and it was very unpopular the first time we made it, but people have started to understand this, that there is a massive asymmetry between uh, limiting access to ballot boxes and, and windows and when people can vote. In, that, that, in, that impacts a very, very tiny number of outcomes, if any actual outcomes. Now, it's not good. People should be able to vote. It should be free and easy to do. But what we're talking about now is is massively disproportional to that. So I wonder how you're both thinking about the shift in focus from efforts to make it harder for people to vote to moving into a position to actually throw out the votes. And if you want to comment on the relative you know, amount of attention that the Democratic Party has put on each of those problems. Matt, do you want to lead? Sure. And, and I think you're exactly right. Look, voter suppression is 
awful, but it has been with us always. Um, it is particularly awful because it is almost always connected to race. And if you look at the kinds of voter suppression things that the Republicans are doing now, it's still connected to race. I mean, they're banning in Georgia the ability to vote on Sunday, which is a direct attack on the souls to the polls uh, movement that uh, black churches use to get people to vote. So it's obviously racist. And and that is a terrible thing. And um, I think I know that both Protect Democracy and Third Way are strong advocates for the Freedom to Vote Act and, and the John Lewis bill. Um, and those bills should be law. There is no question about that. Uh, and, and look, I'm a Democrat and our party didn't get it done. And, you know, we have a lot to, a lot of soul searching to do about why that happened. But to your point, something far more insidious is happening, which is they are preparing to steal the votes that are cast, not just suppress people from trying to cast votes in, in the first place. We have never seen this in, in modern times in America. This is brand new. I mean, look, there have been efforts to stuff ballot boxes here and there. Sometimes they you know, they swing the outcome of an election. Uh, ask Coke Stevenson about that in the in uh, LBJ's day, and and you know, dead voted in Chicago in 1960. Sure, we've seen some of that before, but this is an unbelievably open, concerted, funded, and and very sophisticated effort to prepare to steal votes, and it's happening at the federal level, at statewide level county level and the precinct level. And that I think is why it's so scary. So the next step is installing uh, big lie vote counters in battleground states. Jess, can you lay out the most important levers of power that statewide officials like governors, uh, attorneys general, secretaries of state have over elections? Sure. This, of course, this varies state by state, but, um, and, and really is quite decentralized throughout um, throughout state governments. So for example, um, secretaries of state set sort of policies at the statewide level, including for um, things like how in many states absentee ballots should be processed and, and verified. But then it's up to individuals at the local level to, to make decisions that implement these policies. So when the effort that we're seeing to install big live vote counters is happening you know, from top to bottom. So for example, you have figures like Jody Heiss running to replace Brad Raffensperger as Secretary of State, but you also have Steve Bannon calling on his podcast for his followers to sign up to be poll workers, the kind of people who are adjudicating you know, the most basic low-level um, disputes or, or decisions that are on election day and in the days leading up to it. So what's scary about the what's scary is the scale of this attack it's really full uh, fully taking on vulnerabilities at every level of the system um, and we need to marshal small d democratic forces um, at every level to match it and I think that is something that we have not yet seen okay so you mentioned Raffensperger I, I want to walk through this a little bit because he be, he became famous obviously for refusing to find extra votes and give Georgia's electoral votes to Donald Trump Let's just uh, play a thought experiment here for a minute. How might that have played out differently with someone like Jody Heiss as the Secretary of State? Um, what, what, what precisely? What we would we have seen? Could we have seen? And you know, what would it have looked like? 
one thing that was uh, that Secretary Raffensperger should get a lot of credit for is that throughout the post-election period, he was very committed to you know recognizing that that proper procedures had been followed and that the ballots that were being counted and counted and counted again were in fact reflections of the will of the voters. I think with someone who took a different attitude towards his role could have embraced conspiracy theories, cast doubt on the validity of those ballots, and then opened the door for legislators to say, we will never know who won this election. And so we have to step in and, and make our own choice. In many ways, the the, the power is as much the sort of power um, of the, the bully pulpit or the microphone as direct sort of levers of control over election processes. I'm so glad that we're doing this because what you just described is probably not what most people envision when they hear we're going to steal the votes, right? If if it's um uh, if you say they're going to steal the election, you imagine a person like Jody Heiss coming out and saying, "Oh, well, we found the 11,000 votes and it's done," right? It's not going to happen that way. And as a matter of fact, the perniciousness of the big lie is that it does precisely what you just mentioned. It undermines the the public trust in the validity of the election in the first place so that you open the door to chaos and confusion and anything can be claimed. I think that's right. And I think to go back to something that, that Matt was discussing earlier, it's also ha- what unites the effort to suppress the vote and the effort to throw out the votes. The rhetoric that we are hearing about the big lie and the need to Chain implement voter suppression policies in order to prevent voter fraud also undermines confidence in the election in a way that will make it easier to steal the votes later on. So it's right. there you can't tease them apart fully as two distinct issues. Okay, so Matt, some of the candidates that Republicans are looking to oust in these races are actually Republicans who did their jobs in 2020, and we're talking about Brad Raffensperger shutting down Trump's attempts to subvert the Georgia results. There's also Arizona Governor Doug Ducey. But other than this fact that they actually did their jobs as they are sworn to do, uh, they aren't, they are, they're, they're Trump guys, right? Trump endorsed Ducey when he ran in 2018. Raffensperger said he voted for Trump in 2020. He hasn't rolled out voting for him again in 2024. How do you think about the willingness to lie about who won the election as the only real litmus test for these candidates? Well, I think that there are uh, two ways to think about that. In deciding if you are a resident of Arizona, whether you should vote for Doug Ducey if he decides to vote for Senate, I would posit that somebody that supports Donald Trump probably shouldn't be in the Senate because I'm a Democrat and I think he's terrible. <laughs> uh, but uh, but if it came down to a question of whether Brad Raffensperger or Jody Heiss should be the Secretary of State, both of them Trump supporters, one of them uh, believes in American democracy and the other one doesn't, I'm going with the guy who believes in democracy. And I think that there are many groups in the democracy protection space who are either nonpartisan, like protect democracy, or are uh, partisan kind of never Trump Republicans who are attempting to elect people like Liz Cheney, who believe in the rule of law and they believe in democracy. And I think that is vitally important. If there are places in which Democrats simply aren't going to win, we're not going to win the House seat in Wyoming, um, then it's very important that we support people, even people with whom we disagree, you know, strongly on basically everything else, because this is the center pole of our democracy. It's the most important thing. 
Let's move on to threatening election officials in the deck. So one of the threats we're seeing against poll workers is the recruitment of an army of partisan poll watchers. I think when people hear that, they'll say, poll watchers aren't a new concept. Like, why is this different? Those That's existed for a long time. So I want to start by uh, asking you just to summarize what the consent decree with the RNC was, uh, when it expired, and what is different as a result. So the uh, consent decree with the RNC stems from a dispute, I believe, in the 80s over a Republican Party effort um, to install to send poll watchers to precincts uh, where there were significant numbers of African-American voters expected and and to be present at those polling locations in a very in an intentionally intimidating way. The consent decree that was entered then barred the Republican National Committee from conducting similar sort of poll watching efforts in future elections. So it expired in 2018, and that allowed the Republican Party to sort of resume efforts to uh, sort of resume on a large scale efforts to recruit poll watchers. We saw um, episodes in the 2020 election of poll watchers behaving in an unruly and disruptive way. So I think we might all remember the videos of the um, poll watchers in Michigan who sort of banging on the glass, trying to get into where ballots were being counted. Um, that, although there is a legitimate and important role for poll watchers to play in making sure that the processes of elections are being run fairly, I've been a poll watcher, um, they, they play an important role in making sure voters' rights are respected, but they can be a really disruptive force um, that that can can have a harmful effect on election processes. Um, we I, we saw that in 2020. I fully expect we'll see more of that in 2022. And in addition to the efforts to recruit poll watchers, we're also seeing laws in states like Texas that give those poll watchers new rights, make it harder for um, uh, election officials to kick them out if they're being disruptive. And again, if you think back to the play here is to create disruption and uncertainty to allow legislators to sweep in and uh, dictate their preferred election outcome, disruptive forces like poll watchers are part of that scheme. So at a time when a lot of attention is now about to shift, did shift in 2020, is about to shift even more in 2022, to to the to actual election workers who traditionally have been nonpartisan and this is things are run quietly and safely and securely the the you know the the Trump subversion machine is now targeting these these wheels of democracy at a time when the pact that they had abided by since the 80s is now expiring and we should note by the way the um the uh, federal judge that ruled in this case in 2018 was an Obama appointed judge. And he said that the, basically the DNC had failed to show that the Republicans had broken the rules for all ever since the eighties. And because they didn't have any evidence that the Republicans had broken the rules, the pact should expire. And basically you're, you know, you're off probation, right? So now they're off the leash at a time when the attention is gearing up. And so I just want to, I want to put that in context for people because there's sort of two, two negative things converging there. Um, 
But there's also the legal threats to election officials. And we've talked about some of those with David Becker. In the deck, you cite a sheriff in Wisconsin who was seeking felony charges against state election commissioners. Matt, can you lay out what the election commissioners were accused of in that case? Yes, it's unbelievable, but true that this sheriff, who has been backed up by senior uh, Republicans in the state legislature, including the state Senate majority leader, wants to arrest the state election commission for giving out technical guidance to election clerks throughout the state on how to run an election during a pandemic. That, he believes, is an offense for which these people should go to jail. Um, he wants them charged with felonies. And the uh, this goes directly to Jess's point about this is all in service of trying to get the ball back into the court of the state legislature. Because um, under uh, one interpretation of the Constitution, the state legislature can rule that the election was in some way failed and then choose their outcome, choose their, their chosen outcome and send the electors to Congress that they want rather than the ones that the voters of their state have picked. That is the game here. And all of these things are in service of that. So you're getting to step number four now, which is the plot uh, for, for state legislatures to take power to run elections, right? Can you talk about what states are doing and what that could mean for 2024? And then maybe we'll spend a little bit of time on the potential for a constitutional crisis and and essentially what makes a crisis. Uh, sure, I'll start with that. I mean, one thing to keep in mind is if you think of the swing states, there's about 10 swing states in presidential politics. We all know what they are. In every single one of them, Republicans control both houses of the state legislature at the moment. and Unfortunately, the likelihood is that they will control both houses of those legislatures in 2024. It's not certain. A couple of them could flip, but most of them are pretty solidly red. That means that they have the power, especially in states where there's also a Republican governor, to change the rules of how how elections are conducted and who gets to dictate those rules. In most states, Um, And this goes to Jess's point about how elections used to be run. In most states, the legislature sets out broad rules around how elections are run. And then there's a lot of discretion given to the county and local officials. If, for example, there's a power outage and the voting is held up for a few hours, they can keep the polls open a little bit longer to allow people to vote. Or if there's bad weather, or if there's any number of things that happen every single election that somehow make it harder for people to get to the polls, they can accommodate those folks. There's a million questions around provisional ballots. If you go to vote and there's an extra dash in your address, do you have to you know, cast a provisional ballot? All of those things require that these local officials have discretion. And what the state legislatures have done is wrested all of that discretion away from the local officials and given it to themselves. In the case of Georgia, a state legislative council uh, has taken the power away from uh, county officials in, let's say, Fulton County, which is where Atlanta is, and where you know the big corpus of Democratic donors live, and uh, and they are going to control the election themselves. And this is extraordinarily dangerous for the, all of the same reasons. They want to set out the rules so that they can decide whether they like the outcome or not, and if they don't, they can pick their own winner. So. The presentation talks about the independent state legislature doctrine. 
Jess, can you explain what that is and how persuasive it might be for the Supreme Court? Sure. So the first thing I'll say is it, it doesn't deserve the label of doctrine. It is really at best a, a theory um, and okay. a pretty uh, a pretty wild theory if you think about how it would play out in practice. So so the origins of this are in um, the Constitution, which, which gives you know in the, in the case of presidential electors um, the power to the legislature to direct how those electors are are chosen. Um, most all states have now done that by by saying voters will choose on election day. Um, what what the this independent, unconstrained state legislature theory would say is that the fact that the Constitution t- assigns the responsibility to the legislature to direct how electors are chosen, no other laws apply, and in particular, state constitutions don't apply. So that a legislature can make rules for elections that are not governed by their state constitutions, um, prohibitions on racial discrimination or requirements of sort of partisan fairness. Um, that uh, one application of this theory would say that a state led an extreme application, I should say, would say that a state legislature could simply throw out uh, voters' choices if they don't like them and. Um, replace the president, the electoral college, uh, the electoral college selections with the legislature's own choice. There's also an application of this that says anything that a state court does to throw out election rules because, for example, they are racially discriminatory is not proper, and that the state legislature's rules have to be followed, whatever state courts say about it. If this theory were adopted, which it has never been, it would introduce real chaos into our electoral system. This is not a workable rule, um, and it doesn't make sense, right? State constitutions create state legislatures, and they impose uh, impose limits on what those, that legislature could do. And there's no reason to think that in drafting the Constitution, the founders intended to throw out those um additional requirements when it comes to setting the rules for elections. All of that being said, you know, as the um, as Matt's excellent deck illustrates, uh, several of the Supreme Court justices, at least four, have signaled some support in or interest in some version of this independent state legislature theory. And so if they succumb to that impulse, if a case is teed up that tees up this issue, and they endorse, you know, uh, an extreme interpretation of the Constitution to to really take all limitations off state legislatures when it comes, in particular, to presidential elections. Um, bad things happen. Bad things happen. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> chaos, chaos ensues. Chaos ensues. Is this a new theory? It is not a, a totally new theory, and and there are different flavors of it. Um, so there are more and less extreme interpretations of what this constitutional clause could mean. Um, okay. But it has certainly uh, gained pro- prominence in conservative legal cir- circles recently. So we saw some of the cases that were filed in 2020 raise this argument. I expect we may see this argument uh, come uh, emerge again very soon in sort of Supreme Court cases concerning redistricting. So we don't have to Mm. wait for 2024, I think, to learn 
what Supreme Court justices think of this issue. The other last point I will make is that, you know, even a pretty extreme version of the independent state legislature theory allows, you know, will we'll concede that federal law, and in particular, the federal constitution is still going to control. So we think there are good reasons to think that if a state legislature simply threw out uh, the votes of, of voters in a presidential election, you would have a good argument to replace those ele- replace the chosen electors with their own slate. Uh, voters would have a good argument that the federal constitution's due process clause uh, would be would have been violated and that the original elector should be reinstated. And, and that argument would not be susceptible to an independent state legislature claim. Thank you. So one of the pretenses that's being used by legislatures to take control of elections um, is that, as Steve Scalise put it on Fox News Sunday, a few states did not follow the laws, end quote. Um, and this is something we don't we haven't talked about this a lot on the show, at least not in detail. But, uh, you know, Trump claimed that um, the state legislatures didn't approve all the things that were done in every 2020 election. And thus, the election was unconstitutional. This is how the big lie goes. Some of the specific things they had issues with uh, were Michigan sending vote-by-mail applications to registered voters, which a court ruled was constitutional, Wisconsin adding drop boxes, which a court ruled constitutional, uh, a Pennsylvania state law required that ballots be received by election day, and a court ordered that they be allowed to arrive later than that, but Pennsylvania ended up separating those votes and they wouldn't have changed the outcome of the election. Uh, and Georgia gave voters additional time to cure their ballots. They did not take issue with uh, Governor Abbott in Texas providing extra days of early voting <laughs> or Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchison allowing voters to use COVID as a reason for absentee voting. So are these cases examples of that legal theory being played out? Yes, and it's totally incoherent. I mean, obviously, the the argument uh, at the base of the big lie, of course, is totally incoherent because it is a bunch of elected officials, most of whom were on the ballot with Trump, arguing that their own election was invalid. Um, and you know, so the, if you're searching for intellectual, um, you know. Uh, coherence in any of this, you're not going to find it. It's all complete nonsense. And as uh, Gelman's piece makes clear and others, uh, it flies in the face not only of how elections have always been run, but of any kind of common sense. You cannot run a national election for 340 million people without some degree of of, uh, flexibility and allowing for individualized circumstances to to allow people to vote. And this notion that somehow providing drop boxes has invalidated the election is bizarre and and transparently partisan and they're not even trying to hide it. They're there it's a purely, you know, outcome driven effort uh, to change the result of the election they're just grasping at whatever they can. And yet, a majority of Republicans believe the election was stolen. Uh, I had a good campaign operative friend once upon a time uh, who who always used to quip, never try to inject logic into the political process because you'll get burned. <laughs> exactly. 
So sabotaging the Electoral College, the last step in the plot, um, uh, sabotaging the Electoral College and deeming the losing Republican candidate uh, the victor. We've talked about the need to reform the, the Electoral Count Act with David Becker. And specifically, we talked about the limitations, really, of, of, elect, uh, of modifying the Electoral Count Act in that it can only really clarify some things, um, but it can't completely prevent uh, this nightmare scenario that we're discussing. Can you talk about what Republicans would need to do under the current law, so assuming nothing is clarified, uh, to challenge and throw out the electoral votes from states? There are a variety of things that Republicans could do uh, to, to change the outcome of the election when it comes to them on January 6th of 2025. And remember, this will be the new Congress that will have just been elected in November of 2024. They are sworn in three days prior. And if you presume that Republicans control both houses of Congress, uh, as they luckily did not in January of 2021, uh, there is real uh, real stuff that they could do. Now, obviously, uh, Kamala Harris will be the vice president. So this notion that Mike Pence somehow could have changed the outcome of the election was idiotic then, and it will be a non-starter next time. So that's not the thing. What they could do, though, is uh, try to either scrap the electoral votes they don't like or uh, count electoral votes they do like. And I'll just start with one and then Jess can pick it up. But um, under the Electoral Count Act at the moment, if they believe, if they deem that electoral count votes from a certain state are not lawfully certified, um, then they don't have to count them. And they can make that judgment and then, you know, as a majority, and then throw them out. And the problem is that if neither candidate gets to 270 electoral votes, which is to say a majority of the overall electoral votes, the denominator doesn't change if they throw out those votes. So it could mean that neither candidate can get to 270 if the votes of a large state or two states are thrown out. And then the House decides on the presidential election and they do it by delegation. Each state gets one vote and Republicans win because they control more delegations. Wyoming and Idaho each get the same vote as California and New York. So um, that's one mechanism, but Jess can take up the others. The other option um, that, that, that might be presented on January 6, 2025, is that we could see a state send two slates of electors to Congress. One slate, let's take Michigan, for example, if they continue to have a Democratic governor and a Republican-controlled legislature, the uh, Electoral Count Act requires the governor to um, sign a certificate of ascertainment that that as to the slate of electors that is being sent. So, you know, we saw Brian Kemp sort of do that in Georgia in 2020. That was one of the pivotal moments. A, a Democratic governor in Michigan, if a Democrat or a Republican, you know, wh whoever wins the popular vote, I think we expect that the the Democratic governor of that state would would sign the certificate. Um, assuming for assume for the purposes of this hypothetical, it's a Democrat who wins. Uh, you could see Republican, the Republican legislature meet and asserting this independent state legislature theory, put forward their own slate of electors uh, that they would then send to Washington. Um, Congress, confronted by two slates of electors, would have to choose, um, and the Republicans could, in, in Congress, could choose the slate sent by the, the 
the uh, Republican-controlled legislature. We saw the sort of beginnings of an attempt to, to make this play in 2020, as we've recently seen in the news, the stories about the um, fake slates of uh, fake groups of electors mm-hmm. that were meeting in some of these states to generate their own uh, electoral college votes to send to Washington. That was never a sort of serious enough plan to get any traction, um, but that is another mechanism that the Electoral Count Act um, offers to a legislature in 2025. So in 2020, they threw a lot of spaghetti at the wall, found out what stuck, and now they're doubling down on the stuff that stuck, basically. How does this scenario change the stakes for maintaining control of at least one chamber of the House, Matt? Enormously. It would be really, really great if uh, Democrats could hang on to at least one chamber. Um, In fact, hanging on to the House would be, at least for these purposes, even more important. Um, And again, it doesn't have to be in 2022, much as I would like us to hang on in 2022. We need to get it back if we lose it in 2024, which is why um, our organization and others are trying hard to at least limit the losses in 2022 so that it is possible to regain the House. Because the difference between Kevin McCarthy presiding over the House and whomever presumably is replacing Pelosi, let's say Hakeem Jeffries, uh, could be the difference between our democracy living and dying. And um, that is not an exaggeration. The kinds of uh, shenanigans that Jess and I were just describing would not happen if Democrats control the House, and they probably will happen if Republicans control the House and if their candidate doesn't actually win the election. So just for our listeners, uh, we we recently aired uh, an episode with uh, Congressman Colin Allred, Congressman Brad Schneider about the um, the New Dems uh, Majority Makers ad, which basically they're signaling to the rest of the Democratic campaign infrastructure, here's what your messaging needs to be in order to win in the House. I just want to underscore that because we're talking about uh, we are talking about the balance of power being the most important thing here. And, um, and I think for our listeners, it's easy to get distracted with this race or that race. You need to be looking at the whole pie, at least right now, at least until we fix the, the, you know, impending crisis that we're talking about. Um, because what you just described, Matt, is uh, if Democrats are unable to, and you're, and we're left in this position where Republicans actually control the legislature uh, in 2025, um, going into 2025, then right, then the, there is no defense, right? There is not. And I would like to just say two other things. One is, if you're a Democrat who is frustrated with the Democrats in Congress because they failed to get Build Back Better done or the, or the Freedom to Vote Act, I hear you. I'm with you. I, I'm frustrated too. And so is President Biden. Get over it. And, and, and go out there and organize for Democrats to win the House because American democracy is hanging by a thread. And whether you're annoyed about some piece of policy or not really needs to be set aside because we are in enormous danger if if Republicans take the House. And the second thing I'll say is just a, a quick plug for a, a group that we're working with called ShieldPack, uh, ShieldPack.org, which is really trying to help save the House. Excellent. Well said. Thank you. Okay. Let's spend some time on how we stop all of this, because uh, I think everybody will now be thoroughly read in multiple times to the the catastrophe train barreling down the tracks here. So the presentation you put together calls for a parallel presidential campaign. 
to prevent the theft of the election. Matt, what does that mean? Well, uh, we will have a presidential campaign, presumably a reelect uh, campaign for President Biden and Vice President Harris, that is enormous, uh, very well funded. We'll have between all the super PACs and the campaign itself, we'll spend about a billion dollars. Uh, we'll be very well organized. We'll be a 50 state effort and we'll be integrated into the work of every Democrat in the country. We need the same thing, but parallel to that, not run by President Biden because he's got a day job of running the country and a political job of getting reelected, not run by his team, but but managed by groups like Protect Democracy that is intended at the same scale to ensure that the election that we hope Biden wins is not then subsequently stolen from him. And that may not be as top down as a presidential campaign. There's probably not going to be a campaign manager and a campaign chair and uh, and various offices that that all report through one hierarchical chain. But it needs to be as big, as sophisticated, and as well funded as the presidential campaign itself. So you write that the leadership of the, this campaign needs the most influential uh, small D Democratic voices of both parties. Um, I just spoke with David Pepper, uh, former Ohio Democratic Party chair, wonderful guy about how the never Trump label, and I put that in air quotes, doesn't really give us a lot of information anymore and that we should be lifting up a team, shifting to a team that's, he says, always democracy. Um, and I mean, I have, I have really two questions about that. I mean, one is like practical. How do we actually put that coalition together? Uh, and then I would be fascinated by your thoughts of how you come to, uh, from a from a tactical perspective, how you come to define what democracy is, because I think tragically it is, uh, you know, in, in our in our in our messaging, in our rhetoric, it's actually undefined. It's extremely undefined, and that bears out in the polls when you see that people are the vast majority of people are, are actually alarmed uh, at the state of democracy but for vastly different reasons and um, I think we have a major crisis of messaging there so uh, take either one of those you want in either order I'll start with the second one I think at its most sort of simple level democracy has to mean that uh, power changes hands depending on the outcome of an election. And I think that's what this, you know, effort that that Matt is describing in in these slides is really designed to to prevent. Right. The the goal is that the goal in 2020 was that power did not change hands in in a that Trump did not leave the presidency despite losing the election. Um, in 2024, the question will be: Does you know are the results of the election respected if a Democrat wins the presidency? Um, maybe we'll see sort of similar questions come up even even before then. And so, when I think about what does it mean for someone to be sort of always on on team, always democracy, it's about sort of being willing to lose. Um, and that's what I think we're we're not see, we're not seeing among so many of these candidates who are spouting the big lie. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yes, I, I 100% agree that in substance, willing to lose, terrible banner. Sorry. I totally agree with you, to be clear. But, but and that's you why see the Matt's messaging the challenge. Messaging right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt, bring it. <laughs> 
Well, well, I think it's important to understand something. The campaign, the parallel campaign I describe is not a campaign to win over the hearts and minds of voters because I don't think it's possible. They don't, they're not going to be made to care enough about this. The listeners to this podcast care, the people that work at Protect Democracy care. There's a, of course, there is a layer of people out there who are very, very worried about this. If they read The Atlantic, they probably care. Uh, but the vast majority of voters are worried about other things, and you see this in every single poll. And so our message to Democrats is not go out and talk about this incessantly on the stump and find a good message around it. Um, our message to them is, if you are trying to get yourself reelected, go do that and and Godspeed. But if you are working to help protect the vote, or if you if you're a you know a philanthropy or a donor or an activist, make sure you're also helping. Jess and her colleagues protect democracy and ensure that those votes that are cast are actually counted. That's that's the message. And it isn't, let's go change hearts and minds on this subject because right. it's too esoteric. Okay, good. You draw attention to the need to win key state and local elections in 2022. Governor's races in almost every battleground state, secretaries of state, uh, especially Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and potentially flipping state legislative chambers in Arizona, both, Georgia, both, Michigan, uh, just the House side, Pennsylvania, both. We're expecting this to be a really tough election year, obviously, for Democrats. You mentioned that. With the exception of the gubernatorial elections, these races don't get a lot of attention to begin with. Uh, It's one of the things I talked to Pepper about. So how do we get enough energy and money and attention on the races that people don't traditionally care about? Well, this is a huge perennial problem for Democrats. Republicans are much better at uh, watering the seeds of the of the political system, um, making sure that they've got candidates that are well funded and running at local level. And you're seeing this in, in a kind of terrifying way with school boards and and uh, other local elections. There are plenty of groups out there that are doing incredibly good work. Run for something is a group that is organizing people to run for county and state, uh, but mostly local and county elected positions to protect uh, democracy in the various ways that we've discussed. So what people can do is send money to the Democratic Secretaries of State Association, send money to run for something, or actually go run for something. Get in touch with them and run yourself. It's, uh, It's vitally important that this happen. And the thing that we touched on earlier that Steve Bannon and Charlie Kirk are really focused on, this precinct strategy, um, ProPublica went out and looked at just 65 counties, and keep in mind there are tens of thousands of counties, or thousands anyway, thousands of counties. They looked at 65 of them in uh, the battleground states. In just 65 counties, and this was in the early fall, they found 8,500 people who had signed up to be precinct workers, not poll watchers outside the elections, but precinct workers who are counting the votes that have been driven there by Bannon and Charlie Kirk. These are uh, QAnon adjacent people who believe that, you know, crazy things about the election. We need uh, small D Democrats, people who believe that the votes that are cast should be counted whether no matter of party, we need them to go out and ensure that they have those jobs and not the people driven there by by Kirk and Bannon and others. So there are plenty of things that people can do with their money, with their time to help protect democracy at the local and at the state level. And that's really what they need to do. Okay, cool. I have two follow-ups. One is just that 
I would not put Steve Bannon in the QAnon category. I think he's far more dangerous and not that mm. stupid. He's an avowed Leninist who actively wants to destroy the state and rebuild it in some dystopian future. So like bad dude, um, <laughs> real bad dude who knows what he's doing. That's the point. I think he really knows what he's doing. Um, second, I have just a side question for you because, um, the, the grassroots message is very well received and that needs to happen. I wonder what has contributed to this sort of blind spot in the democratic infrastructure and whether or not there's sort of, uh, sort of grass tops things that need to change. Why is it that, uh, that the democratic ecosystem has not thoroughly invested in watering the seeds, as you put it? This is a frustration that I've had in 35 years in democratic politics, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody. I started my career at the presidential campaign level and have kind of worked it in, in Washington. Um, but the problem for Democrats is our activists and our donors and our philanthropies and our uh, kind of insiders are totally focused on the federal elections. And they're really, really important. Um, but we have massively underfunded and paid far too little attention to state legislatures where Republicans have just dominated. Uh, there's a group called ALEC, which you've probably talked about in this show, that um, is just staggeringly effective at passing things through state legislatures that are terrible. We have no, I mean, we, there are equivalent organizations, but they are minuscule by comparison. And, uh, and we have done very little to encourage people to run for local office. That is beginning to change. The groups run by younger people like Amanda uh, Littman, who runs Run for Something, are, are coming on the scene and they're great. Stacey Abrams um, and Fair Fight are, are doing unbelievably good work at organizing in places like Georgia, but it is um, only happening episodically and we need them and others to have much more money and help immediately. It, it's a big piece of what we're calling for in this kind of presidential level effort is to drive resources down to those levels because we must wake up to how important they are. All right. In addition to stopping the election from being stolen, Democrats also have to actually win the presidential election, Matt. So, you know, Biden won in 2020 by over 7 million votes. Uh, but you know, only 12,000 in Georgia, 10,000 in Arizona, 20,000 in Wisconsin. These aren't huge margins for uh, for a presidential election. How important is it going to be to increase those margins given the current climate? And also, you know, in 2020, we were talking about how an overwhelming electoral defeat, this was early in 2020, we were hoping that an overwhelming electoral defeat could stifle the anti-democracy wing of the Republican Party. And now we're talking about needing a massive electoral victory just to avoid mass chaos. Look, I think what the the fact of the matter is we're not going to get a massive victory uh, we haven't had a landslide election in presidential politics since 1984 uh and they're not likely to return we're because of the electoral college we are basically a 50-50 country i mean look democrats will win the popular vote by millions we always do now uh but that's mostly because we rack up huge wins in california and new york and um and so we can't rely on a huge landslide election. We have got to be ready on the democracy protection side to defend against a very narrow election. I mean, I, I worked on the White House staff of Al Gore, um, and he lost an election by fewer than 600 votes. 
600 votes um, in a national election. Um, so I think we just need to be prepared that the election is going to be super close. Uh, we must win it legitimately, and then we must protect that win. Okay, everybody, get out your um, get out your pencils and your paper uh, because Jess and Matt are now going to tell you what you can do <laughs> to 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 help thwart this plot. You've mentioned a couple of organizations so far, but I want to take this time uh, to dig in as much as you need to on uh, you know from where we are right now. What are the most important things? Uh, that our listeners need to be thinking about and doing to help maintain our democracy? Do they have to wait until the election rolls around? What can they do now? Um, and, uh, and, you know, depending on the time you have and what your, you know, what your proclivities are, um, where would you point them? So Matt described this as, as a presidential, you know, needing a presidential campaign amount of effort. And, and that's true, but it's a presidential campaign that starts now. Many of the people who are going to be decision makers in 2024 are going to be elected in 2022. So they are on the ballot and they will be, and, and the elections in 2022 matter as ju- just as much as the election in 2024. So if you have time, uh, you know, in a not if you're if you have time and want to do something nonpartisan, um, you should look for opportunities to to work the polls. Uh, elect, your local elections office needs people needs temporary workers. You don't have to go as a volunteer. Uh, look for opportunities to volunteer with nonpartisan organizations that do things like voter registration and and poll watching the good way, and support organizations and candidates whose values line up with yours and who are aligned with, you know, the kinds of small D democracy values that we've been talking about here today. Yeah, I would, I would simply add that, um, because we live in a big country, things are different everywhere. So you can work for fair fight in Georgia, but there may be a different organization where you live. Um, if you have the resources, give money to people running as to Jess's excellent point in 2022, people running for secretary of state, people running for governor, people running at the local level. Um, if you can go run yourself um, and, and call run for something or check them out and they'll help you figure out how to do it and um, engage with people in your communities, both in real life and in your social media communities and make sure that we are paying as we the the people who believe in democracy are paying as much attention uh, to what is going to happen in 2024 as the people who no longer believe in democracy. That I think is the most important thing that that we just need to wake up our our entire establishment from the activists at the base to the you know senators and everybody in between and make sure that they're thinking about this and this is a top of mind issue for them. Matt and Jess, thank you so much for being here. Before I let you go, where can everybody find you on the internet? Jess? Uh, we are at protectdemocracy.org um, and I am on Twitter at Jess Marsden. Okay, Matt? And we are at thirdway.org, which is where the deck is residing, uh, shieldpack.org for those interested in helping win in 2022. And I'm at thirdway, Matt B on Twitter. Awesome. Give Lene our best. Of course. We'll talk to you again soon. 
Thank you. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.